0: This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our show, Coast to Coast. It's November thirtieth, 2005, and I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts.
2: And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And I write two blogs, one
1: called Media Law, one called Law Sites, both available through LegalLine.com. Uh, today we're going to talk about the uh, abortion case that's uh was argued this morning before the U.S. Supreme Court, which New Hampshire's Attorney General Kelly Ayotte uh, went before the Supreme Court today to try and persuade the justices to reinstate a controversial abortion law that was struck down two years ago.
2: And, Bob, as we're recording this, the... Video or the audio is rather streaming from C-SPAN, and we may be listening to some of it during our show, but the abortion law that they're discussing now and before the Supreme Court requires that an abortion provider give 48 hours notification before the procedure to the parents of a minor, but makes no health exception unless the girl faces imminent death. Parents or guardians are contacted in person or through certified mail.
1: Supporters of the law claim that it promotes parent involvement in a difficult procedure and uh, a potentially uh, risky health situation, while opponents believe that it is a step in narrowing abortion rights.
2: Well, Attorney General Ayotte, who's a Republican, is opposing her boss, Governor John Lynch, a Democrat, by joining the Bush administration as the Supreme Court hears its first abortion case in nearly five years. Some say this is a smart political move on Ayotte's part by presenting her case before the Supreme Court and gaining notoriety in the world of politics. Others, on the other hand, criticize her for using this law to gain exposure, which she hasn't officially come out and said that she personally supports the notification law.
1: Today we have two guests to discuss this issue with us. Uh, First, we'd like to introduce Professor Neil S. Siegel. Professor Siegel is an assistant professor of law and political science at Duke Law in North Carolina. He recently completed a clerkship with Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the Supreme Court and uh, joined the Duke Law faculty in 2004. Professor Siegel teaches in constitutional law, federal courts, and related areas. Uh, His other teaching and research interests include legislation and statutory interpretation, public law and economics, the jurisprudence and methodology of law and economics, criminal law and criminal procedure. Welcome to the show, Professor.
3: Uh, Good to be with you.
2: And also we're going to welcome Matthew Staver. Matthew Staver, who's the President and General Counsel of Liberty Counsel, serves as the lead attorney on Liberty Counsel's litigated cases. He's argued in numerous state and federal courts across the country, including the United States Supreme Court. Liberty Council cooperates and coordinates its efforts with other religious liberty, pro-life, and pro-family organizations, and Liberty Council has represented many notable clients, including Focus on the Family and Dr. Jerry Falwell. Welcome to the show, Matthew.
4: Thank you. My pleasure to be with you.
2: Uh,
1: Neil, I wonder if I could start with you and ask, I'm not sure whether you've had a chance to listen to the arguments at all this morning, but uh, what, what was at stake in the case today? What's, what's the issue being presented to the court?
3: Well, I've not had a chance to listen to the uh, oral argument yet or look at the transcript. I'm certainly looking forward to doing that. I think we'll know a lot more about uh, what's going to happen after, uh, after, after we see what the justice has said. I think there are two issues at stake. The focus has been on the health exception and whether or not a parental notification law uh, rec- is required to have a health exception in order to pass a constitutional muster. I think the more important aspect of the case has been the less reported, which has to do with the standards for challenging an abortion regulation on its face, that is to strike down the statute in its entirety often before it goes into effect. I think that's a technical issue, uh, but it's also by far the most important because it has implications way beyond the context of parental notification statutes.
1: Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What is is the issue? Sure, sure.
3: The question is whether in order to strike down an abortion regulation on its face, you have to show that there is no set of circumstances in which the law could be constitutionally applied, the so-called Salerno standard, which was a 1987 decision in which the court articulated that general rule for facial challenges. Salerno was not an abortion case. It didn't have anything to say about abortion in subsequent cases in the abortion context. The court didn't apply the Solano standard, but rather what's called the undue burden standard, which doesn't ask whether there are no circumstances in which it could be constitutionally applied, but rather whether there's a large fraction of circumstances, a large fraction of women, um, for whom application of the statute would impose an undue burden on their right to an abortion. So the question is, how hard is it going to be to challenge an abortion statute on its face and strike it down in its entirety?
2: Well, Matthew, it's going to be a while after today's oral arguments before we get a decision. Do you have any prediction on the outcome?
3: Well, it's
4: hard to predict without knowing exactly all the questions that have been asked and answered by the justices, and even then it's still really hard to predict. You can't ever walk away and be 100% sure in most cases that you've either won or lost based upon oral argument alone, but I think it's going to be a close decision. It may ultimately be even one of those cases where if we end up with something other than a five to three decision, in other words, taking O'Connor out of the picture if if we have a five to four decision with O'Connor in the picture, depending upon what side she's on if if her vacancy uh, would ultimately result in this being a four four decision, if this case came out for example uh, before uh... she retired then uh, she would have a vote but if in fact she's not there on the bench uh... then her vote wouldn't count and so it could be a four four decision and the case could ultimately be re, re- argued. but i agree that this case is more important than the parental notification issue that's on its face here before the court that's obviously important for many reasons but The bigger implication of this case is its future standard for other abortion litigation challenges, and I think this case has the potential to either open up the floodgates, so to speak, for abortion litigation to allow pre-enforcement challenges or to really restrict that avenue of pre-enforcement challenges and bring abortion litigation back within other normal jurisprudence Article three of the Constitution requires that for federal courts to have jurisdiction, there has to be a real case in controversy before it. And that's why the Salerno rule has been uh, very restrictive, that you just can't walk into court and challenge a law before it's applied and, based upon a hypothetical application of the law, have the law ruled unconstitutional across the board that typically the law has to be applied to a certain set of facts or if there's an exception to the rule that limited exception is in for example free speech areas where you have this law that is written so broad that it chills so many people in their activity of free speech that it could be challenged across the board abortion is one of those situations where it's not really clear whether the court has used a facial challenge or or not a facial challenge uh, the professor is right in terms of what uh, the court has done in terms of this large fraction. But I think the real issue is is this court going to allow these facial challenges or as applied? And I think this case really illustrates the issue. This case was never applied. What you have as a parental notification law, the affidavit by the doctor in the case says that there may be some circumstances where a 48 hour waiting period would jeopardize the health of the minor, although in his practice he's never seen such. An application of that in his practice. And the other affidavit that's in here is that Massachusetts has a judicial bypass law, a neighboring state. 16,000 judicial bypass hearings have been conducted and only 15 requests have been denied. So even if the remote hypothetical by the doctor were to occur, which he's never seen in his practice, most likely the 48 hour waiting period would be able to proceed with a judicial bypass. But notwithstanding that, the entire law was struck down without it being enforced or applied.
2: Well Neil, one of the questions that we were listening to before the show started, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it was from Justice Ginsburg who said uh to Kelly Ayotte, can the how did she get to challenge the entire act and is there some more narrow restriction that can be placed on it? Do you want to comment on that?
3: Well I think the concern the concern I mean, it's, it's no matter what the court does, it's an imperfect answer, right? I think Uh, your other guess has indicated the problem with not using the Salerno standard, which is you could have all sorts of applications, indeed a majority of applications of the statute that are not problematic that a facial challenge gets rid of. On the other hand, if you employ the Salerno standard and do it in the way Salerno intends, you can have circumstances in which there's an emergency and the only recourse is an as-applied challenge, and by that time it's really too late. Right? The minor who's experiencing the medical emergency at that point has to then bring the legal challenge, and at that point it's too late. And so I think the question is, how do you how do you decide this case in such a way that both interests can be imperfectly balanced? I think what uh, New Hampshire is trying to do and the Bush administration is trying to do is to massage the problem with the Solano standard by saying, well, you can bring an as-applied pre-enforcement challenge it's not a facial challenge, but you could still get at the problem before the emergency takes place, and what Justice Ginsburg, I imagine, wants to know is how that's different from this case. I think there's also issues of rightness. Um, how exactly do you bring a challenge as applied before there's an actual case or controversy, before there's an emergency? Um, how would such a controversy be ripe for review? Right? How would it qualify as an Article III case or controversy uh, that would satisfy uh, federal jurisdictional requirements. I'm not sure that there's there's really a good answer to that concern.
1: Well, it, so- it sounds like what you're both saying is that this case does not present a direct uh, 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 conflict with a challenge, rather, to Roe v. Wade. But it, 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 depending on how the court rules on this issue, it could open the door to uh, a, a whole slew of other cases that that could begin to challenge or chip away at Roe.
4: Well, it could either make uh, future abortion litigation easier or more difficult to challenge statutes, certainly be in a pre-enforcement stage. And I, I think that's the real significance of, of this particular case.
3: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I don't think the, the issue in the short term is, is Roe going to be overruled? I think the issue, rather, is going to be, is it going to be technically uh, still the law, really Casey is really the, the governing law, Planned Parenthood against Casey, is that going to remain the governing law and get more and more restrictions on abortion? Are they, going to be, are they going to be upheld?
2: Apart from the judicial challenges, do either of you see any effect that this case may have on state legislation?
4: I think it would have a, an effect on state legislation if, in fact, the court said that the Salerno test applies and therefore you could not do these broad facial challenges, especially at the pre-enforcement level. What that would ultimately, I think, do is free up legislatures to pass legislation that uh, regulate or restrict abortion. And then the challenges to those, even if a part of the law was struck down, the majority of the law could effectively be upheld, and so at least they would be able to be guided by what they could and could not pass as opposed to having the whole thing thrown out and having to start all over again. So I think you'll have more laws that would be upheld or certainly less
3: laws that would be challenged. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think the other side of that is that, is that if the court affirms the force the first circuit in this case, you might have future legislation that's more narrowly targeted. So for example, if this statute includes not just a general health exception, but let's say an emergency health exception, right? There's more of a chance that the statute is going to survive a facial challenge.
1: There there are I think from the information I have, 21 states now that require some form of uh, uh, parental consent and, and 13 that require parental notification. Uh, what, what's different about the New Hampshire law that's that's brought it to the Supreme Court?
4: Well, the real difference is this one's a notification, but it doesn't have the health exception. And it does have what we would consider a life exception in, in the sense that if uh, there is like an ectopic tubal pregnancy that would threaten the life or cause death, to the uh, minor child uh, then you wouldn't have to go through this uh, waiting period or you wouldn't have to go through this process of, of the notification you do have that exception but i think the real difference here is that it doesn't have the life exception kind of like in the partial birth abortion statutes uh, that were before the court in carhartt in the year two thousand and that will no like uh, no doubt be before the court again and some of these other ones coming up they have a life exception but they don't have a health exception and the health exception sometimes can swallow up the rule because health can be very broadly construed to psychological well-being, financial well-being. Uh, simply, you don't want to have a, a baby at this time because of your career choices. So that is a broad exception, uh, and that uh, is an exception that this particular statute does not have.
1: Matthew, did you hear any of the argument today? Or, you know, was I was not able to hear the
4: argument, but I will certainly uh, listen to the argument, and watching the uh, C-SPAN, I know, is going to be re-airing those arguments, and we'll certainly be listening to those uh, arguments later in the day.
2: Well, Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, which sued to block this law, said it performed some 550 abortions in New Hampshire last year. Fifty-two were on minors. Uh, do you see this as a backward step in women's rights, or is it a step forward?
4: Well, for me, it's certainly not a backward step in uh, women's rights. I think it's a it's a step forward to have uh, involvement by parents. I think uh, you, I think we obviously ought to. Uh, in trust uh parents we have in many of our other uh mechanisms and statutes and laws and policies and we ought to be able to trust parents here clearly parents uh, should be involved in the decision of this kind of magnitude whenever their uh daughter has an abortion or is considering an abortion again this is not a consent law if the parents still object to this law they can still have the abortion this is just simply notify your mom or dad or your guardian to get them involved in the process. Maybe that these circumstances that the minor child is apparently seen, uh, not being able to determine the force from the trees, might be able to be resolved by just a conversation with mom or dad.
2: Neil, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think I certainly don't d- d- disagree with that. I do think notification laws are, are much less controversial than consent laws, and I think for good reason many people support them. I am concerned about emergency health exceptions. I am concerned about having judicial bypass protections for situations in which parents can react in very abusive ways. It may be the vast minority of circumstances. I certainly hope it is. But they exist, and, and constitutional law often exists to protect people who are most vulnerable, and that would include minors. As opposed to advancing the cause of women's rights or not, I, I'm very loath to phrase the issue in that way, it seems to me that there are women um, who feel very strongly on both sides of the abortion issue, writ large and in this particular context uh, writ small and i don 't want to say that one side really knows what women 's rights is about and the other side doesn 't
1: This is being portrayed by uh, some people as a as a, a defining uh, moment in the, the new chief justice's uh, uh tenure. i i wonder if uh either of you have any thoughts on on what the what role he might play in this decision and uh what it might mean uh, in terms of defining uh uh his uh the, the Roberts court as it goes forward
3: well i mean the Roberts court could very well last 40 years so i think it's very premature to call this a defining moment it's certainly one of the earliest defining moments Right, this is, abortion's a huge issue, especially now in a time of transition transition in which constitutional law can change, and so there's a lot of tension being played. I think this will serve as a signal or a bellwether about what's going to happen in the years ahead, how much uh, abortion regulations are going to be approved as opposed to struck down by the court. But I don't want to, I think it's an overstatement or uh, too much getting lost in the moment to say that this is one of the defining moments in the potentially decades-long history of the Roberts Court. Yeah,
4: I think good health uh, certainly could have Roberts on the court for at least 30, maybe even 40 years, and so that's a long time to look at what the court uh, direction will be. But clearly I think it's a thermometer, so to speak, uh, in this issue very early in Chief Justice Roberts' career. He's only been on there for just uh, a couple of months, and now he's already got a big case before him. This is no small case. This is a big issue uh, far beyond the issue of parental notification. And in fact, this particular court could actually uh, bypass the whole uh, substance of this uh, parental notification and just rule on whether or not this case is even ripe to be challenged. And they could say it's not ripe to be challenged because there's no as applied challenge here and facial challenges are premature set that standard as future standard, which I think would ultimately affect a lot of future litigation, and then send the case back down for uh, an actual as-applied challenge on this case.
2: Are there some twinges of political moves on uh, Attorney General Ayotte's part, or do you think she's really a defender of the abortion notification law?
4: Well, I don't have any knowledge to speak to uh, this particular Attorney General's political aspirations and wouldn't uh, pretend to, uh, but the Attorney General is... In in charge of enforcing and uh, certainly defending laws that are challenged. So, uh, obviously, is carrying out her uh, statutory and state constitutional duty. Other kinds of motivation are not known to me.
2: Neil, you've spent some time with Justice Ginsburg. What do you think that uh, her take on this is going to be like?
3: Uh, I, I really am am, am loath to uh, to sort of put words. In the mouth of the justice for whom for whom I clerked, uh, I think the the oral argument, uh, either the, the 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 broadcast or the transcript, um, will tell you quite a bit about what her concerns are. She's not one to uh, to have a real poker face during argument. If she has concerns or she has a view, she's certainly going to let you know. Um, having said all that, I imagine she's going to be concerned about uh, emergency emergency health exceptions. Um, I think she's going to be concerned about circumstances in which you can have minor, uh, uh, minors whose whose health is gravely in danger, um, and and the statute would seem to put uh, doctors in the position of having to make unpleasant choices about what to do in those circumstances. I imagine she's also concerned about uh, the Salerno standard and the implications that it might have for future challenges that would also put put women in women in jeopardy. But I certainly. Uh, don't know what she's thinking. I haven't spoken to her about it. Um, I don't speak to her about cases like this, and so I think she'll she'll speak for herself uh, very effectively.
2: Do you think the justices' individual uh, circumstances with their own children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, has any effect on their decision in a case like this?
3: Well, I do think I do think judges and justices are people, and I do think what goes on in there. Uh, what goes on in their lives, what goes on in their personal life histories inevitably has an effect. The Constitution contains very broad and open-ended phrases that have to be filled by something, Um, and part of that is the typical uh, legal modes of argumentation, but part of that is also life experience. But I also don't think that somehow life experience and personal relationships uh, decisively informs the outcomes the cases. I think Justice Kennedy, for example, um, is a, is a justice who is extremely conflicted about abortion. Um, I don't know but if I had to guess would guess is personally opposed, and yet he cast the decisive vote in 1992 uh, to reaffirm the core of Roe. Um, I think based on on principles of stare decisis of what uh, his view of the court's institutional integrity. So I don't think personal views about abortion and family necessarily. Determine outcomes in cases. Um, I do think there's a difference between personal views and legal views, even though I also think that they're I- inevitably affected by by each other.
1: I believe we are going to take a short break. Uh, if you would just stay with us, we will return in a few moments.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources, from daily headlines to practice-specific updates. Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day, or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
2: Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams.
1: And I'm Bob Ambrogi. We're back with our guest, Professor Neil Siegel, uh, law professor at Duke Law, and uh, Matthew Staver, President and General Counsel of Liberty Council uh Matthew Staver you had an article this week in uh Legal Times in, in Washington DC newspaper uh in which you said that this is not uh not the case uh in which the Supreme Court should should uh uh, really face the the abortion issue head on. Uh, your organization also filed an amicus brief in this case. Uh, is is that the position you took in your amicus brief? What's That's your the position we
4: took. We we took the position that you don't even have to get to the prenatal notification issue. That you ought to address the broader issue because really the broader issue is this: Does the court have jurisdiction to hear this case? And if you answer yes, then you get to the do bro- you get to the issue of prenatal notification? If you answer no you don't and you state the reasons why and we believe that the court ought to answer no it doesn't have jurisdiction why because it's not one of those article three cases or controversies it's a hypothetical that's a facial challenge and it's never been applied and that's the standard that we ought to follow that uh, abortion litigation ought to come within the basic general uh, practice and other litigation not hypotheticals but as applied challenges And since this doesn't have an as applied, uh, it should be uh, sent back. And I think that's the rule that should be followed for future abortion litigation. So that's the position that our amicus brief took. I think that's why the court can just reach this principle, this standard of review, and not have to go any further. In fact, I think if they do reach that standard of review, uh, they should not go any further. Because if they ultimately rule that they don't have jurisdiction because it's a facial challenge without being applied, uh, then there is no reason or any authority to really move forward to the next question.
1: That, just let me ne- mention that article of yours is available through your organization's website that was in Legal Times this week. At, your organization is lc.org, and also at legaltimes.com has has your article this week.
2: Neil, from an insider's perspective, I've always been curious to learn whether the justice's procedural refusal to hear the merits of a case should be viewed as uh, a substantive holding in terms of the validity of the underlying statute or is it really just we're not able to hear this because it's not ripe it's not ready and we're going to deny it on a procedural ground without really passing any any uh, approval or disapproval on the underlying case. Uh
3: right, you're talking about not at the cert stage whether to hear a case but at the merit stage deciding it based on a procedural uh, a procedural question as opposed to the substantive legal exactly. question.
2: Yes, exactly.
3: Right. No, I think I think as a general rule, if the, the, the case goes off uh, on a procedural question, um, for example, say in the in the uh, one of the enemy combatant cases back from a couple of terms ago, uh, the, the, the Padilla case, in which they said that he had sued the wrong person in the wrong court, right? He needs to refile in South Carolina. That was a procedural holding, and the court viewed that as decisive. Now, there's a lot of talk about whether their view of the merits. Informed that procedural holding, um, sometimes um, perhaps it does, but in general, I think if there's a decisive procedural objection and that's what the court says, then that's what uh, that's what the court that's what the court means.
2: How do you think that's going to occur in this case?
3: Well, I I think it's it's a little different in this case in that if they say that the, the correct standard of review is Salerno. Um, and we don't need to decide the issue because there's only a facial challenge i mean you've decided the issue right if the if the standard of review is salerno there's no way that the lack of a health exception right is going to be is going is going to be effectively challenged it seems to me and is as applied circumstance when the emergency takes place that's what's dramatic about such a decision in this case right it's going to be it's not just that you didn't raise an as applied challenge you should but that in the circumstances people are most worried about it's going to be effectively impossible to raise an as applied challenge at least in an important subset of those cases so this is a case in which it seems to me that if you decide the procedural issue that way it's very hard to set up a situation in which you can uh have the merits of the issue uh be resolved in a future case in a way uh, in a way that's going to mean anything
4: Yeah, I agree, and I think that's really the point. It would be difficult. I think if you did challenge, it would have to be under a TRO uh, with an emergency hearing to get to some kind of immediate relief and take it up. Uh, And I think that's how you could challenge it, or maybe there's some other ways. But I I think this is not just a procedural issue that we're talking about on the Salerno new set of circumstances test versus a facial challenge here. But it's a substantive jurisdictional issue. And so once you decide that, uh, that is deciding a major issue that sets the standard for future cases.
2: Great. Well, I guess within a few months, we will have the answer to all of these questions. Thanks very much. We'd like to thank Professor Neil Siegel and Matthew Staver, President General Counsel of the Liberty Council, for being our guest today.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambroji and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.